Angie's List is now Angie, the nation's largest home service marketplace. And they are here to help homeowners get all their jobs done well. Angie has helped over 150 million homeowners care for their homes. Whatever your home project, big or small, indoor or outdoor, come to Angie to connect with and hire skilled professionals to get the job done well. Have you had a leaky roof? We did, and it was a nightmare. But through Angie, we found an amazing roofer who specialized in flat roofs, and he fixed it right and quickly. Angie can help you find the best price for your project. Angie lets you request and compare quotes from multiple pros in just a few taps or book services at an upfront price based on local data. Angie has cost guides that tell you what others have paid for similar projects, both nationally and in your area. Get started at Angie.com, that's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. The app and website are both free to use. That's Angie.com. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. Our question for the day, how do we stop them from killing more people? Them specifically, I'm talking about Donald Trump and Jair Bolsonaro. The epicenter now for the world for this pandemic has moved from the United States to the United States and Brazil. We are the two countries where this thing is completely out of control and or largely out of control. And, uh, you know, in the United States, you could say state by state. But in Brazil, it's like, woo, it's totally out of control. And these two guys are essentially refusing to do anything consequential about an epidemic that is killing massive numbers of their own country's citizens. And for this, in my opinion, Bolsonaro and Trump should be brought before the International Criminal Court at The Hague and charged with crimes against humanity. What do you think? I mean, to compound the situation here, Trump is now ridiculing people who wear masks, including Joe Biden. Wearing masks is one of the most simple, low-cost, effective ways to slow down the spread of the pandemic and to reduce the number of dead people. But Trump doesn't want to smear his makeup, and so he's suggesting to his insecure white male followers that wearing a mask somehow makes a man seem less manly. He's also refusing to do anything about testing at the national level other than ordering some swabs, which are not tests and they're not test kits. They're just swabs. I mean, this isn't just an abrogation of his duties as president. In my humble opinion, this is a crime. It is intentional disinformation, this, this uh, squawking about masks that he's doing. It is intentional disinformation being put forward purely for political purposes. And it is and will continue to kill people. Even worse was his ignoring and lying about the, uh, the coming pandemic when he was first informed of it back in November and December. Trump and Bolsonaro knew this thing was coming. Both of them from their own intelligence agencies. And if they didn't want to believe their intelligence agencies, they could read the damn newspaper, at least in December. I mean, this is when China said, hey, we've got a, we've got a problem here. That was December. And then they could have said, you know, well, let's say, okay, January or February or March. Well, eventually Trump did something in March. Bolsonaro still hasn't done anything to the best of my knowledge. But for two and a half, three months, they didn't even have to look at their own intelligence or look at what was going on in China. They could read the news or watch television about what was happening in Spain and Italy. 
and to a smaller extent in France and then later in the UK. But it really hit Spain and Italy first in a big way. The virus mutated there, so now we can identify the European version as opposed to the Asian version. The Asian version uh, proliferates up and down the U.S. West Coast, particularly in the Pacific Northwest. The European version is all over the, the eastern seaboard and down to Florida. And then, of course, you know, spring break spread it all across the Midwest. And that's, that's going all over the country. And in both cases, either one of those could have been stopped but Donald Trump did nothing, and now the same thing is happening in Brazil with Jair Bolsonaro. You know, you've got countries from Taiwan to New Zealand to Norway that have gotten the virus under control. Many of these countries, New Zealand and Australia, talking about eliminating the virus altogether. Not a single person in the hospital in New Zealand right now. They've only had seven deaths in the same period of time that we've had over, we've had 100,000 Seven deaths. That's it. And now they don't even, not only do they not have somebody on a ventilator, not only do they not have somebody in an ICU in New Zealand, they don't even have a person, not one person, in the hospital with COVID-19. And Trump and Bolsonaro, they did worse than nothing by spreading lies and disinformation, by sending us off chasing down rabbit holes of hydroxychloroquine or uh, warm weather or it's going to go away when the summer comes or whatever as this virus exploded through our populations. Many of the families of people here who have died of COVID-19 in the United States have considered suing Trump, but it's nearly impossible to sue a sitting president. And Bill Barr has made it clear that the Justice Department will not hold Trump accountable for anything, up to and including, as they argued before the Supreme Court, Trump could murder somebody on Fifth Avenue, he could reload the gun and start to get ready to shoot somebody else, and you would not be able to stop him, you would not be able to try him, you would not be able to investigate him, because he's the president, don't you know? This is the Bill Barr doctrine. So you think we're going to hold him accountable for encouraging behavior that is killing Americans? indirectly by a virus? I mean, you, we actually have stories now of people walking into supermarkets and other public places and spitting on people or coming up close and breathing on people. Or This one woman, she, she you know, $35,000 worth of vegetables had to be replaced because she was spitting on them in the supermarket and screaming that she had the virus. Now, you know, a few of these are just nutty people. I mean, they would otherwise be standing on the street corner talking about the aliens coming or 5G is going to scramble their brains or whatever. But these, it, this, this has now metastasized into the Trumpiverse, into the people who are listening to right-wing hate radio and watching Fox News and aggressively not wearing masks, aggressively coming up on people. Why? Because of Trump. We have people here in the United States who can't sue him and yet are the victims of his criminal malfeasance. And the rest of the world, victims of the United States and Brazil. I mean, the rest of the world is looking at us in horror. And we're still, and Brazil is still exporting people. Yes, Trump stopped planes coming from Brazil to the United States by yesterday or the day before. So what? We have a worse epidemic than they do. I mean, they're catching up with us fast, but this is mind-boggling. We have the United States and Brazil. Amazing, it was an amazing op-ed by Gideon Rockman, who is like one of the best financial reporters in the world, over at the Financial Times yesterday. If you have a Financial Times subscription, you can read it. And I know a lot of these papers, the Financial Times, the Washington Post, the New York Times, have made a lot of their COVID-19 coverage outside the paywall, so you can still read it. You may be able to, I'm not sure, but just uh, check out FT.com and see if Gideon Rockman's piece is up there. And he's talking about how he went to Brazil last year, and he was talking with one of the country's leading economists who said, and Rockman, I believe, is British, but he made some comment about Donald Trump, and this economist said, no, we've got it worse here. Jair Bolsonaro is actually more stupid than Trump. And Rockman was like, you know, Trump is like legendarily stupid. 
And this guy was like, no, you know, the, the highest, you know, Trump actually ran a multimillion dollar enterprise. He might have run it badly, but he ran it. Jair Bolsonaro, the, 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 the highest level of accomplishment of his entire life was being a captain in the army. He's an idiot. It's an amazing. So now the U.S. and Brazil have become the uncontrolled epicenters for a worldwide explosion of disease. And therefore, I think, and I'm curious what you think, if this is the most effective way to get, stop these guys from killing their own people and threatening the planet, that Donald Trump and his mini-Trump, Jair Bolsonaro, should be brought before the criminal court, the International Criminal Court at The Hague, and indicted and convicted for crimes against humanity. What do you think? you think it's possible? Back with more of the news of the day and your calls in just a moment. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. And, uh, you know, some of the stuff in the news, there's some fascinating and consequential things in the news. This is Mark Sumner writing over the Daily Kos, just exposing what Ron DeSantis is up to in Florida. It turns out that uh, Florida has had a sudden spike in deaths from pneumonia. Uh, from 2014 to 2018, the numbers that we have averages for, or numbers for, the average number of pneumonia deaths per year, for an entire year in Florida, was around 2,800. So every year in, in 2014, in 2015, in 2016, in 2017, in 2018, each year on average for the entire 12-month period, there were around 2,800 people who died of pneumonia in Florida, which is, you know, sounds about right. right? It's not unusual. But we are five months into this year, and so far, there have been 4,200 pneumonia deaths in Florida. Now, why are there twice as many, roughly almost twice as many, pneumonia deaths in Florida right now? Um, because there's not as many COVID deaths. Florida apparently is reclassifying COVID-19 deaths as pneumonia deaths so that they can say, oh, you know, we've only had a couple thousand people die, 2,300 recorded deaths, 56,000 cases. But Michigan has in the neighborhood of 56,000 cases, too, but they have twice as many deaths as Florida does. So what we're seeing here is that Ron DeSantis is, is lying to the people of Florida and to the American people. And apparently he's not the only one. Apparently this is happening in a number of red states. Apparently the, even the CDC numbers have been corrupted by these, by these um, antibody tests that the FDA allowed to be sold that don't work. And millions of them got sold. Everybody wanted to get one right away. And there was you know, something like 70 or 80 different manufacturers who were selling antibody tests. And it turns out that they would say, yes, you have the antibodies if you had had the common cold in the last year, because that's also a coronavirus. It's a different family of coronaviruses. It's the A category instead of the B category, but you know, nonetheless. So Trump says, oh, we've got millions and millions of tests. Well, not so much, number one. Number two, you've got state after state after state where the governors and the companies in those states, the companies, the large workplaces where they're having these outbreaks, particularly meatpacking plants, prisons, um, and uh, you know, facilities where people are just jammed in together. Uh, they're refusing to release these statistics. But when we look at the death rate, it's one of the, one of the harder things to hide. Although, as I just pointed out in Florida, Ron DeSantis is actually hiding them in Florida. He's hidden apparently several thousand COVID deaths just in the last couple of months. Keep in mind, people have only been dying of COVID since March. It's May. I mean, you know, and, and he's apparently hidden as many COVID deaths in Florida, or nearly as many as there were all the pneumonia deaths the previous year. But if you look at the death rate changes, Arkansas right now is up 142% in deaths from, this is uh, from deaths. In Oklahoma, they're up 50%. In Iowa, they're up 44%. In Virginia, they're up 29%. In North Dakota, 28%. In Georgia, 20%. Minnesota, 12%. And uh, Alabama, 10%. Everybody else is, you know, single digits. And some states are actually reducing their death counts. Here in Oregon, I think it's been several days since we've had anybody die. There's one workplace, apparently in the Portland area, where there has been an outbreak. 
and that will not translate into deaths for another couple of weeks, three, four, five weeks. But there's been an outbreak here in Portland. Prior to that, we were seeing Multnomah County, which is Portland, basically. It's, you know, it's the biggest county in the state, population-wise. Um, we were watching you know, the, the death rates, or the infection rates. And the infection rates, you know, uh, a month and a half ago, it was like 30 people a day. And then it was in the 20s. And then it was in the teens. And in the last couple of days, it was like two, three, five. And, uh, but it's going to pop back up again. And, and in fact, there's a fascinating piece in the Washington Post about how it appears that one of the principal ways that this virus spreads isn't so much person to person, but super spreader to group. You get one person who is really blowing a lot, a lot of viruses out for some reason. And we're not sure of the reason. It may be that there's somebody who talks loudly. It may be that there's somebody who, you know, has a lot of saliva. I mean, I, you know, we just don't know. We're still trying to figure this out. But that one person will infect 20, 30 people in a workplace or wherever it may be, in a church. I mean, the, the major outbreaks have been in churches and meatpacking plants and, and, uh, and really tight, tightly confined working places that are you know, similar to, to meatpacking plants in terms of people being together. And uh, if, if you can just get those under control, then the principal vehicle for getting them under control, and this is what Japan has done. Japan never locked down. Their constitution doesn't allow it. They used to have a fascist administration. They want to make sure they never had another one. So Japan never locked down. Instead, what they did was basically encouraged everybody to wear a mask all the time. They don't shake hands. They bow. And so everybody's wearing a mask. Nobody's shaking hands. And people are talking softly. That's literally part of their plan. And they have the lowest death rate of any of the G7 nations, several of which shut down. So masks, big deal. They really help. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Health Justice Now, Single Payer and What Comes Next by Timothy Faust. And this is from the introduction. A secret scream rings through America. 
It rings down the sterile fluorescent hallways of our hospitals. It rings over our rural towns and our native reservations. It rings through our prisons, the bellies of our great cities. It rings in our farms, in our fields, our streets, in our sewers, our bodies, and our blood. And we are cursed to never hear it clearly until at last we realize it has been our own mouth screaming and we are lost. A child born today inherits in that secret a new American squalor, the skeletal remains of the American cities, the bleached bones of the American suburbs. This secret is a birthright of continual exploitation, pumped for labor and drained of cash and then punished for the resulting suffering. Punished for being hungry, punished for being sick, punished for being pregnant, punished for being poor, punished for being black or brown, punished for being queer, for being unlucky, for being. At the base of that suffering is lodged a little truth, like a knot in the stomach. In America, sickness makes you poor, and poorness makes you sick. This is a book about that relationship and why it happens, and why it's unnecessary, and what we can do to fix it. The cosmic whirling of God's great slot machine has not determined that some people are fated to suffer while others flourish. We have the resources to take care of everyone, and yet we refuse to do so. Your medical debt and medical bills are unnecessary, but we have chosen to make them necessary. These are structural problems with structural causes, and many of them share roots in how we pay for health care. This is a book about health care and health finance. They are different. Health care is anything that helps you stay safe and healthy. It's a kind of freedom from and within your own body. Health finance is the method by which we as a country pay for that freedom and by which we decide who gets to have it and who doesn't. Health care is more than what happens to you in the hospital. Health care is whether your home makes you sick or your food makes you sick or your environment makes you sick or whether you have enough money to afford the things that keep you healthy. In America, the structure of corporate health care has convinced us that some people deserve health care and some people don't. This is a book about that corporate health finance, about private insurance and private insurers. For half a century, they've convinced us that they're the only things that keep us or could ever keep us from the utter financial ruination of illness. They've sold us different inadequate insurance plans and persuaded us that this is a form of great liberty while chipping away at our freedoms for profit and holding our bodies and our children's bodies hostage. This is a book about single-payer health care, a health finance model in which we pool our abundant collective resources to provide health care to all people. It is a common model across the world. As we will discuss in this book, we have the potential not just to enact a single-payer program in America, but to build the greatest health care program among any so-called developed democracy. Here is my profession of faith. I believe beyond any doubt that single-payer is demonstrably sound and imminently feasible. I believe a properly ambitious and well-structured single-payer program will do more than any other American social program of this generation to soothe the burns, to resuscitate the spirit, to nourish the moral will of the American people. I believe it will loosen the loathsome manacles of American health finance, an exploitative institution that profits by plundering from us our own bodily autonomy and that anchors the larger exploitation that holds those whom we love as captive leverage to guarantee our servitude to abusive employers or domestic partners, to those who seek to dominate us both in the office and in the hospital. I believe this nation owes its people whose labor has created its rich banquet, the safety and agency of health care. I believe this health care is greater in scope than that which happens upon an operating table. I believe that housing, food, income, and more, the components of basic human dignity, are health care. And I believe our work is that of striving toward justice for all people. And I therefore believe, I have to believe, that single-payer health care is our moral imperative. Single-payer is our tool. Single-payer is our weapon. Single-payer is our first step. But single-payer on its own is not the goal. This book is about health justice. Healthcare is personal, so I want to start this book personally by introducing two friends of mine, Steve Way and Kyle Kolick. They're two guys about my age, I'm 30, who live in North New Jersey, 
They're sweet, gentle people and probably the most charismatic pair of friends I've met in my entire life. They make me laugh until my face hurts and we like watching pro wrestling together. They're also being utterly broken by our American healthcare system and it's keeping them from living their lives. Steve has muscular dystrophy. The muscle and tissues that hold his body together are eating themselves. He's doing pretty good, all things considered. He beat his original life expectancy of 18 and now probably has a long life ahead of him. Steve needs a wheelchair to move and a ventilator to help him breathe. The book, Health Justice Now, Timothy Faust. Here we are. Other countries, Taiwan, Australia, New Zealand, South Korea, China. Increasingly, some of the countries of Europe, certainly, uh, you know, Norway, Denmark. Sweden's having a challenge because <laughs> they're trying Trump's strategy. It's not quite working. Actually, Trump's strategy isn't even Sweden. In Sweden, everybody's wearing masks. People are social distancing. Yes, they're going to restaurants and bars, but they're, they're being careful. And now they're seeing an explosion of deaths. But basically, you've got two kinds of countries in the world now. You've got countries like the developed world, countries like Western Europe, Northern Europe, all across the Pacific Rim, countries that have said, we're going to stop this virus, we're going to stop its damage to our people, and if possible, we're going to eliminate it. I mean, New Zealand and Australia are on path right now to become literally totally virus-free. And China is claiming that most of their country is completely virus-free right now. Now, you know, take whatever China says with a grain of salt, but I believe Australia and New Zealand and Taiwan and South Korea, Japan, uh, Shinzo Abe just lifted his state of emergency. So uh, outside of uh, eight, eight cities that still have problems, but the country as a whole, no more state of emergency in Japan. They've got this thing under control or they're getting there. So that's the strategy of most of the developed countries in the world. And then there's the strategy of countries like Brazil and the United States and the Philippines with uh, Rodrigo Duterte in the Philippines and Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil and every single one of those countries, including the United States. Just blow the doors open, expose the people to the virus, let a whole bunch of old people and poor people and people in poor health die. Let a very small percentage of children die. And then you will have herd immunity and everything will be wonderful. Well, you know, this is a brand new virus. We have no idea how herd immunity works with this virus. We have no idea how many people have to get it and die from it. This is a huge medical experiment that Donald Trump is doing on us that has already killed 80,000 of us, has sickened over one and a quarter million of us. And you get, when you talk to people who, you know, Amy Vanderpool's uh, Shiro newsletter that she was talking about, how she was blogging, live blogging, basically, having the virus. And that was weeks ago. And she still can't catch her breath. I mean, it's just, it's just mind-boggling. This is serious stuff. But to add insult to injury, we discover where this strategy, this so-called scientific strategy of just blowing the country open, where this originated. We just learned this this morning or last night. It was reported by the Financial Times that Jared Kushner told Trump, now this would have been back in January or February, very early on, when people like Dr. Rick Bright, the guy who's testifying before Congress, was literally saying up the chain of command in his, in his department and all the way through HHS, he was saying, we need to get ready. We need test kits. We need personal protective equipment. We need masks. We need gowns. We need shields. And we're going to need a lot of this stuff. We need swabs. We need reagents. And they were just all ignoring him. Well, here's, here's why. Quoting from the Financial Times. Jared had been arguing that testing too many people or ordering too many ventilators would spook the stock market. And so we just shouldn't do it. That advice worked more powerfully on Trump than what the scientists were saying. He thinks scientists always exaggerate. 
In fact, last week, Donald Trump said, and I quote, in a way, by doing all this testing, we make ourselves look bad. No, by having dead people, we make ourselves look bad. And now you've got the Fed chief, Jerome Powell, saying that this cratered economy could remain bombed out for years if the Republicans in Congress don't do something. The Democrats are proposing a $3 trillion stimulus. It ain't enough, but it's a start, or it's a start to a start. But uh, the Republicans are saying no. No problem. You've got countries, the countries that, are t- that have taken this seriously, the countries of, of Northern and Western Europe, are keeping their unemployment, Australia, New Zealand, South Korea, Japan, all of them are keeping their unemployment rates below 10%. Most of them are keeping their unemployment rates below 6%. But in Trump's America, now we got 25% unemployment. We are 4.5% of the world's population. We've got a third of the world's coronavirus cases and, and, and a quarter of its deaths. Which raises the question I present to you. Will the next president be able to undo Donald Trump's damage and the GOP's damage in just a few months? Is it, or is it going to take years? Or might it take decades? I'm kind of voting for decades. But, you know, what do you think? How's this going to work out? This is the Tom Hartman Program. How long is it going to take America to recover from Donald Trump's massive incompetence and, frankly, malice? Reginald in Long Beach, California, listening to KPFK, our Los Angeles blowtorch there. Hey, Reginald, what's on your mind today? Tom, you know, we keep giving the president the benefit of the doubt. We're going to have to accept that this guy just wants to kill off a lot of people. That's it. You know, it's... I mean, you know, I, <laughs> I actually, when I was a teenager, I felt that way about LBJ. But, you know, in retrospect, it clearly wasn't the case. He was anguished by what was happening in Vietnam. I don't think that Trump, though, is capable of experiencing the kind of anguish that LBJ did over Vietnam. Exactly. I, I, I don't think that he wants to kill off people. I think, you know, I, there's no doubt in my mind he would like to kill people like Democrats. You know, he would like to kill his political enemies. But... I, I think he's more concerned about how it's making him look like a, an idiot and a buffoon, Reginald. I think it's like his, his, as an empiricist, it's his only choice right now. And he's taking full advantage of it because it eliminates so many people from our culture. You know, old Well, people- it did get a whole hell of a lot easier for him on April 7th. You'll recall on, on, as of April 6th, even Fox News was talking about, OK, we've got to shut down the country. We've got to lock things up. It had been two weeks, three weeks since Trump had declared a, a national emergency and, and told everybody to stay home. And he was trotting Fauci out in front of the, the camera every single day. But on April 7th, both The New York Times and The Washington Post reported on the front page above the fold that the majority of people dying from this were either elderly in nursing homes or they were black. And that night... Three different people on Fox News started saying, oh, well, I guess this isn't so bad. And within three or four days, you had Freedom Works, the mouthpiece of the Koch brothers and other billionaires, rolling out this time to reopen America plan, which which they're still up to, by the way, Reginald. I, you know, I, I got the email from them yesterday, you know, saying, hey, it's time, here's here's how to do it. It's time to reopen America. So I am strongly of the opinion that. Now that there's this consensus, in fact, one of the Republican senators who was questioning Dr. Bright, in fact, it was Greg Walden, it was the Republican from Oregon, one of our members of Congress, although he's resigning this year, he's not going to run for re-election, but there he was, the one Republican in the House of Representatives that Oregon sent to Washington, D.C., saying, well, we know that this kills a lot of black people and it disproportionately affects minorities. See, that's now the main talking point on the right. And the subtext of that, of course, is, therefore, why bother? Therefore, who cares? Right? It's, it, you know, it, it's like the Republican response to the pandemic, now that it looks like it's disproportionately killing black people, which, by the way, should not be a surprise. Cancer disproportionately kills black people. Heart disease, diabetes, obe- you know, name your disease. 
you know, uh, 400 years of, uh, you know, built into us, institutionalized racism is still with us. But now that that's like, you know, the main talking point for the Republicans, yeah, maybe Trump is uh, saying, as you said, pragmatically, he's a pragmatist. Yeah, they're going to die, so uh, let's make the best of it. Makes sense to me. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting. But Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give. But what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are, too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims Bras at Skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select Podcast in the survey, and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. Our book today is How to Be Less Stupid About Race by Crystal M. Fleming. This is from the introduction, The Origins of Racial Stupidity. It opens with an epigraph from Martin Luther King Jr. It is an aspect of their sense of superiority that the white people of America believe they have so little to learn. From the introduction. Hundreds of years after establishing a nation on colonial genocide and chattel slavery, people are kind of, sort of, maybe possibly waking up to the sad reality that our racial politics are still garbage. But as our society increasingly confronts the social realities of race, we're faced with a barrage of confusing developments. How could the same country that voted twice for an Ivy League-educated black president end up electing an overt racist who can barely string together two coherent sentences? Why do white liberals who can't even confront their Trump-supporting friends and families think that they can lead the resistance? Democrats who don't care about mass deportations or the treatment of Muslims under Obama suddenly care now that a Republican is in charge. While black and brown people are being crushed by systemic white supremacy, the rapper Common thinks we can all get over a race by extending a hand in love. Don Lemon still has a job. Rachel Dolezal exists. Everyone has an opinion about race but 99% of the population has never studied it. And even many textbooks that talk about race 
are filled with lies, inaccuracies, and so-called alternative facts. With so much racial ignorance in the world, how can we ever find our way to that glorious mountaintop Martin Luther King Jr. glimpsed right before a white racist killed him? Although race is an inherently divisive topic, the cause of continual controversy, Facebook feuds, and endless debates, there is exactly one thing and one thing only that we can probably all touch and agree on regardless of our racial or ethnic identity, gender, age, political beliefs, or shoe size. And that is that we are surrounded by racial stupidity. From the White House to Waffle House, from the classroom to the internet comments section, from the television to the tiki torch aisle of your local Pier 1, we are surrounded and at a times astounded by the ignorant and dangerous ideas people express about this thing called race. Why are so many people so incredibly confused and misinformed about race? It's the white supremacy, stupid. As I'll demonstrate throughout this book, one of the main consequences of centuries of racism is that we are all systemically exposed to racial stupidity and racist beliefs that warp our understandings of society, history, and ourselves. In other words, living in a racist society socializes us to be stupid about race. Of course, as you well know, some people are more afflicted by racial stupidity than others. We'll get into the nature of those variations a bit later. For now, I want to emphasize just how widespread and ubiquitous racial ignorance really is. Politicians routinely spout racist distortions of reality and lie about the existence and nature of racial oppression. Absurd racial stereotypes pervade our various forms of media. And as noted, textbooks systemically misrepresent racial history in ways that minimize or erase racism altogether. And all too often, teachers themselves are undereducated or miseducated about the history and ongoing realities of racial oppression. How to Be Less Stupid About Race explores precisely how and why racial stupidity has become so terribly pervasive and examines the cesspool of silly ideas, half-truths, and ridiculous misperceptions that have thoroughly corrupted the way race and racism are represented in the classroom, pop culture, media, and politics. The key idea that I'll come back to again and again is that living in a racist society exposes us all to absurd and actually harmful ideas that in turn help maintain the racial status quo. Drawing from my own experience as an educator and as someone who continually confronts my own racial ignorance, I'll also share some concrete steps that you, as well as your racist friends, ignorant family members, and clueless co-workers can take to become less stupid about race and better equipped to detect and dismantle racial oppression. While I don't personally believe in post-racial utopias and I don't put a lot of faith in reaching glorious mountaintops, I know for sure that the very first step in challenging racism is having a clear understanding of what it actually is. Not only are we surrounded by stupid ideas about race, we are even surrounded by stupid ideas about how to talk about race. In May 2015, Starbucks launched a doomed campaign called Race Together to encourage baristas and coffee drinkers around the country to have a conversation about race. Although many might have mistaken the campaign for a satirical entry on The Onion, Starbucks announced that its employees had the option of arbitrarily writing the hashtag race together on a random customer's cup. Aspiring coffee drinkers minding their own damn business would then be obliged to say something to the barista about race. After a steady stream of criticism and mockery on social media by anti-racists across the color spectrum, yours truly included, the company eventually backpedaled and canceled the initiative. To some, encouraging random people to talk about race sounds like a step in the right direction. But we don't need more profit-driven corporations to take a stand and say that race is a legitimate and important topic of discussion. Rather than thinking about the best practices that might foster a productive discussion about race, the company executives thought best to just sort of tell everyone to figure it out without providing any educational resources, training, or guidelines whatsoever. In a letter to employees, Starbucks chairman Howard Schultz stated that he conceived of the idea, quote, not to point fingers and not because we have answers, but because staying silent is not who we are. How to be less stupid about race by Crystal Fleming. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. And uh, let's see here. Sharice in Polsbo, Washington. Sharice, uh, what's up? Hi. Hey, I was wondering why. So, you know, when you have a small business, I had one, you file your quarterly taxes. The IRS knows exactly how many employees you have, what their average salary is. 
all the information you need to pay these employees is sitting at the IRS, who also can cut checks so easily. It would be a quick program search, really, to pull out all the Social Security numbers and their average wage and shoot checks out that way rather than have small businesses apply for loans to try to get money from banks. So, you know, we send all the money to banks and small businesses have to go there when in actuality we could have just done it all through the IRS. With a simple search, yeah, which and the is, checks could have gone which out. Which is what Canada is doing. It's what Australia is doing. It's what all the European countries are doing. Here, though, uh, because of Citizens United, because of the Supreme Court, um, the banks can own politicians, and they own basically the Republican Party and a chunk of the Democratic Party. And so, when it came time to write the bailout or the rescue or whatever you want to call it, um, it was written so that all the money goes through the banks. The banks, by the way, get a five percent fee. So, you know, if, if, if they write a billion dollar loan, they're getting 50 million dollars, uh, you know, for that, uh, if I'm doing my math right, uh, you know, for doing that. And, uh, you know, it's, right. it's, uh, it's obscene. And Sharice, you are absolutely right. And we're the, to the best of my knowledge, we're the only country in the world that is doing it this stupid way. And we're doing it just so that the banks can skim hundreds of billions, literally hundreds of billions of dollars in fees off the top. And, you know, that's the that's right. the beginning and end of the whole thing. So, Sharice, right. thank you. Thank you for laying that out so clearly. That was brilliant. You're listening to Tom Hartman. It's that time of year where we celebrate Memorial Day. We memorialize the Americans who have died in our wars, in the Vietnam War, in the Iraq War, in the Afghanistan War, in the Gulf War, the earlier Iraq War in the Korean War. If you add all of those wars together that I just named, the sum total of them is fewer than the number of people who have died in three months from COVID-19 virus on Donald Trump's watch. Isn't it time for us to memorialize the Americans who have died and are continuing to die at the rate of you know, well over 1,000 a day as a result of the incompetence of Donald Trump? It seems like maybe it's a good idea. Maybe it's the time to add COVID-19 victims. Because, yeah, I mean, after all, Trump says we're warriors. Or maybe this should be a separate holiday. But something to think about. You'll find a video about it over at TomHartman.com. Dave in Federal Way, Washington. Hey, Dave, what's up? Hey, not too much, Tom. Hey, I wanted to say, first off, because you said you think that truther, there's COVID virus truthers out there. Yeah, I encountered them. I mean, you know, people, when (laughs) Louise and I are taking our walks, people who not only are not wearing a mask, but refuse to move, you know, even to the edge of the sidewalk, you know, they just want to walk right by you, like shove it in your face. You know, it's uh, Kathleen Parker in today's Washington Post is writing about people like that in her supermarket. Yeah, I was job hunting in California, and I accidentally got caught in a, a flash mob of them. And let me tell you something, they, um, I just pity them. I just, I really do. And, and, and let me clarify that. I mean, I'm a liberal at the end of the day, okay? I don't, I, would, I don't, wouldn't care if Trump voters got deported to Russia. I've considered that. I'm like, I think that's a reasonable thing. But I don't want anyone to die of the coronavirus, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh and it, because it's really bad. And, you know, remdesivir, remdesivir was originally created to treat a variant of the coronavirus in cats and felines. And it is lethal. I mean, in other words, what I'm saying is I see no evidence that this um, virus is just going to magically go away. That whole thing is magical thinking. And that brings me to my main uh, point I wanted to ask you is the White House, apparently, and you'll probably, since you're also Fred Flintstone, you'll probably get a mailer on this. But the White House is releasing a COVID-19 commemorative coin. And it's for 125 bucks. Hang on just a second, Dave. Let Let me just let me just recalibrate that it's not the white house this is a private company that is owned by one guy who's a trump supporter and the company is called the white house gift shop but it's not the gift shop in the white house this is an this is a private company that has no affiliation with the federal government um, other than using that name and because they're sucking up to donald trump uh he's apparently uh you know he's okay with it shall we say 
But I'm not sure that the White House is even promoting this thing. But, yeah, they've got a commemorative coin now that that has, uh, you know, all hail Trump basically on it and the names of the, you know, Trump and Pence and Fauci and Burks and whatnot. But it's a private company, Dave. It's not the federal government. Okay, well, that you know gives me some pause there. But the bottom line is, is Trump does engage and Trump supporters engage in magical thinking. Look, do you think Kim Jong-un believes his his ancestors, or he is a descendant of a dragon and a bear that was that was formed on Mount Bekdu? Do you think uh, Kim Jong-un actually believes that in the 21st century? No. Okay, that magical thinking is is it a key ingredient to authoritarianism? All right, yeah. and yeah. Uh, believing the, the COVID going. virus is just. Yeah, to believe the coronavirus or the COVID nineteen is just going to go away is magical thinking. Yeah, I agree. Right. I absolutely, I absolutely agree, and 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 it's uh, you know frankly very destructive uh, magical thinking as well. Dave, thanks a lot for the call. Denise in Calumet, Michigan. Hey, Denise, what's on your mind today? Well, Tom, I have a beautiful story for a change. I was in the grocery. I was going to the grocery store. And a father with three children was trying to get masks on his children. And the one little girl, she must have been about six, was screaming, No, Daddy, no! So Mm. I got out of my car and I put my mask on. And she looked at me and then she stopped crying. She put her mask on. And all the while I was in the grocery store, this little girl just popped out of nowhere. And finally she Uh. was backing up and keeping her distance. But then she said, Thank you for wearing your mask. You made me comfortable. Oh, that's sweet. That's sweet. Yep. Uh, and, yeah. <laughs> you know, I just, you know, this happened a while back, and I've shared it on Facebook. I just, people where, where I live, I'm, a, I'm in super upper Michigan, up in the Houghton and Keweenaw mm-hmm. counties, and they're not masking. Our local yep. township park, they, they're tailgating and partying every warm day. I mean, it's, they're, it's just ridiculous. So yeah. I'm just yeah. like, it's... I'm just really happy that, you know, one little girl fought it and looked at me and didn't. You know, it's just kind, yeah, of, that is, kind of cute. That is so sweet. I, I would have been inclined maybe to even say something like, you know, uh, big people put masks on. You know, I know. I, I, really I, I can't remember what I said yeah. to her, but she, it was like those little eyes were just looking at me with such adoration. And I, I'll never yeah. forget it. It was just, she was so sweet. She was so cute. Thanks a lot for the call. Uh, Brian in Rosella, Illinois. Hey, Brian, what's on your mind? Uh, yeah, uh, speaking of right-wing propaganda, you know, I have heard it on several of their outlets about their strategy is to try and blame this on China as much as possible. Right. And well, and, concerned- and Trump tried to blame it on Obama. And, uh, you know, Jim Acosta from CNN asked him, you know, something about the tests. And he says, when Obama left, he gave us broken tests. And it's like, what? You know, there wasn't even this virus. It's like, right. but anyway, back to you, Brian. I'm sorry. Yes, well, he's trying to blame him. He blames everybody Mike, for Mike everything. Yeah. But what concerns me is our relationship with China has been horribly mismanaged since the 80s. You know, the neoliberalism that I hear you rail about, you know, and Bill Clinton did sign the trade bills. He did give China WTO status have been a disaster for America's working class. There's no two ways about it. Plus, you know, like look at all of our pharmaceuticals now and all of our critical items we need for this pandemic. Well, we have to wait for it to come from China. I mean, I think the Democratic Party, maybe Joe Biden could start appointing cabinet members and put somebody on the get going on this trade issue. We've got to get this solved because the Republicans are going to demagogue it up one tree and down the other, because they are desperate as can be to win the next election. And we've got to get a rational policy that makes sense for average Americans, you know, front and center, to take on the Chinese. Because this is going to continue, this is probably just going to get worse. And there's going to be other pandemics, too. And we've got to start thinking about what makes sense for the American people instead of what's going to make the most money for the wealthy people in the world. And that's yeah, here's point. the problem, Brian, and, and, and this, is how it, this is how it played out. Up until the 1980s, and even through the 1980s, 
the Democratic Party was the party of labor and was basically a party of protectionism. You know, keep those tariffs in place. We had high tariffs on imported goods, at least imported goods that competed with things that we manufactured here in the United States. And it was the main reason. And those tariffs, by the way, were put into place by George Washington in 1793. And those and, 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 you know, kept in place by every president from George Washington to Ronald Reagan. Reagan came in and Walmart and all these big retail businesses and the big manufacturers, they were all leaning on the Republican government saying, we want to move our manufacturing overseas. And Reagan negotiated and then uh, George Herbert Walker Bush actually finished the job. Reagan started the job of negotiating this whole thing about the, the GATT, the, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, which led to the creation of the World Trade Organization and the, uh, and the North American Free Trade Agreement, NAFTA. And those things were put together. They were Republican ideas. They were put together by a Republican administration. And tragically, Bill Clinton went against his own party and, and you know, a 50-year history of his own party and signed off on that and, in fact, campaigned on it in 92, which is what brought Ross Perot out of the woodwork. And Ross Perot got 20 percent of the 19 and a half percent of the vote. And it was purely on this issue of trade. And that was 92 Americans knew which way the wind was blowing. And the, in my opinion, the only way the Democratic Party survives this is by going back to their protectionist roots. And the reason why Trump has not had any success, and you know, I've, we've had Peter Navarro on this program, I mean, long before he joined up with Trump and became crazy. But uh, you know, Navarro would make basically the same point I'm making, that you know, you, we've, got to get, we've got to get manufacturing back to the United States. And typically the way that you do that is with tariffs, particularly when you're competing with companies with lower wages and lower environmental standards and no unions. And so what the Democratic Party needs to do is basically repudiate what came to be Clintonism and, and embrace people like Sherrod Brown and Bernie Sanders, who have been fighting this fight on trade forever. And Sherrod Brown is perceived as a mainstream guy, but, you know, it's, and Bernie, of course, is perceived as the left. But, you know, this is right across the Democratic Party. The, the entire party needs to say enough, because the reason Trump can't pull this off, Trump and Navarro can't pull this off, is because they're trying to do it by executive order. You can't do this by executive order. You've got to do it by Congress passing laws that support these tariffs. It has to be systemic. You know, one president issuing an executive order to put tariffs on, you know, say, you know, car parts from China is not going to cause Delco to build a new factory in Michigan because they're looking at a 20, 30, 40 year horizon for that investment, you know, for a return on that investment. And with an executive order, it can be easily reversed by the next president. Whereas if Congress passes a law that's going to stand for the next 20 years, then Delco is going to build a factory. And, and if the Democrats don't get their act together on this soon, they're going to get trounced again. This was probably the major issue in the Midwest that caused Hillary Clinton not to win those states, Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. And, and it's going to be a major issue this time around, although it's can being eclipsed. Quick, quick point. Yeah, go ahead. Sure. Yeah, another problem is the Chinese money now has infiltrated our economy. Like yes. the world's largest pork producer or packing house, United States, Smithfield Foods, is owned by China. Is owned by the Chinese, right. And, That's right. And a large and chunk of the real estate in California is owned by China. They own huge agribusiness setups, you know, all the hog producing facilities. They own those too. You know, they own the Yeah, shipping. and they're being shipped to China. After right, and now Chinese money is influencing the states and state senators in the Midwest, and it yes. just goes on from there. I mean, we've been and sold this should be outlawed. Yeah, and no, I'm, I'm with change. you. This this needs to be outlawed, and uh, you know, and if the Democratic Party doesn't go for this, uh, they're in in deep doo doo. Brian, thank you for the call. It's the Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from The Meat Racket, The Secret Takeover of America's Food Business by Christopher Leonard. Uh, this is from the prologue. Uh, it's titled The Hidden King. Nobody ever visits the stranded little community of Waldron, Arkansas. But even if they did, a tourist would never see the place for what it really is. Most outsiders would be fooled into thinking it was an actual small town. On any given morning, the residents awaken and begin their routine along Main Street. Old men park their pickup trucks by the curb in front of the Rock Cafe, which opens early for breakfast. As the cafe's booths and tables fill up, a congregation of old-timers and cowboy hats gathers in a loose ring of aluminum chairs out front, smoking and talking and stubbing out their cigarette butts in a bucket full of sand. 
Later in the morning, Chambers Bank in the south end of town opens up, and the tellers cheerfully greet customers by name. On Thursday at noon, the livestock auction opens in a cavernous barn on the north side of town, drawing crowds of ranchers who haul steel trailers behind their trucks, with cows staring out between the horizontal slats. In the late afternoon, teenagers park their cars by the gazebo south of the auction barn, proudly displaying their Mustangs and Broncos like big game trophies. These events have a rhythm of their own, the clockwork functioning of a small-town economy. But it's all just window dressing. All of it would cease to exist in a moment and have no impact whatsoever on the true Waldron or its true economic reason for being. The real tempo of the town's economic pulse is measured by the coming and going of semi-trucks that roll down Main Street at periodic intervals, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. In the middle of the night, tanker trucks full of animal feed rumble past the empty stores and out onto country roads that lead into the hilly terrain that surrounds town. At dawn, other trucks trundle in from the hills, heaped high with battered metal crates full of chickens that exude clouds of white feathers along the highway. The tempo can be measured in the regular arrival of train cars full of grain and oil seeds that dump their loads at a feed mill that clanks and hums and churns all night. And in the parade of refrigerated trucks that pull up to a slaughterhouse near the feed mill and get loaded with pallets of frozen meat. This is the real functioning of Waldron, Arkansas, and its true reason for being. This is the heartbeat of Tyson Foods. The Tyson plant on the north end of Waldron is the only thing that keeps the town on the map. Appropriately, many residents simply refer to it as the complex. That's because the Tyson plant isn't just a factory. It's more like an entire small-town economy consolidated into one property. The complex contains its own feed mill and hatchery, its own trucking line and slaughterhouse that covers several acres of land, and processes about one million dead chickens a week. The complex is like an economic dark star that has drawn into itself all the independent businesses that used to define a small town like Waldron, the kinds of businesses that were once the economic pillars of rural America. Of course, tourists to Waldron would never see the Tyson plant, and not just because it sits on the north fringe of town away from Main Street. Visitors are stopped at its front gate and forbidden from exploring its grounds. So a tourist would have to be content to stroll along the sidewalks downtown, observing the fake Main Street, the deceptive array of little businesses that make it seem like a community. This illusory appearance cloaks Tyson's existence all the way from its roots in rural America to the grocery store shelves and restaurant menus where its products finally reach American consumers. The average shopper is usually fooled when he or she peruses the meat aisle, seeing what appears to be an abundance of choices and products. Tyson brand name wouldn't necessarily stand out with its logo gracing just a handful of products. But the rotisserie chicken slowly turning in its oven, the Bonisi brand pepperoni, the Lady Astor brand chicken cordon bleu, the frozen chicken pot pie, and the Wright brand bacon all come from the same company, Tyson. And then there is all the unlabeled meat that Tyson floods into the U.S. food system every day. The meat served in cafeterias, nursing homes, fast food restaurants, and suburban eateries where more and more Americans eat their meals. There's a very good chance any of the meat purchased in these places was made by Tyson. Even if Tyson did not produce a given piece of meat, the consumer is really only picking between different versions of the same commodified beef, chicken, and pork that is produced throughout a system that Tyson pioneered. Tyson's few competitors have resorted to imitating the company's business model just to survive. This book aims to explore the vast hidden territory between the remote farms and towns like Waldron, where Tyson raises millions of animals, and the final point of contact where consumers buy the company's meat. Unseen between these two poles is a hidden power structure that has quietly reshaped U.S. rural economies while gaining unprecedented control over the nation's meat supply. Just a handful of companies produce nearly all the meat consumed in the United States, and Tyson is the king among them. The company sits atop a powerful oligarchy of corporations that determines how animals are raised, how much farmers get paid, and how meat is processed, all while reaping massive profits and remaining almost entirely opaque to the consumer. Because Tyson and its imitators are based in the geographic and economic fringes of America in forgotten places like Waldron, the company has managed to escape the scrutiny it deserves. While Tyson's operations are remote, the company's business practices affect virtually everyone. About 95% of Americans eat chicken, which means they almost certainly eat chicken produced by Tyson. And then it goes on from there book is The Meat Rack, The Secret Takeover of America's Food Industry by Christopher Leonard. Dwayne in Warren, Michigan. Hey, Dwayne, you got the last minute of the show. What's up? Hey, Tom, a professor. 
My pleasure speaking with you. I'm following right in that same vein. Those clowns that were there with their AR-15s, the senators, state senators, were starting on a law to ban firearms in the Capitol. And uh, I guess they were getting death threats. And I'm like, oh, can't the state police find these people? I mean, I don't know how they did it. They shouted them down or whether they called them or what, but... I mean, that's ridiculous. Look, they tabled it. And they're not even going to do it. Yeah. Yeah, what we're looking at here, Dwayne, is domestic terrorism. You're looking at, you know, crass intimidation, specifically. And, and it's wrong. It's just, it's un-American. I mean, it's, 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 it's classically the way the, the Klan behave. But it's not, it doesn't reflect American values. We'll see you tomorrow, same time, same place. In the meantime, take good care of yourself and help out our democracy. And be sure to tell tell friends, neighbors, acquaintances, anybody who will listen how they can find good progressive media. There's a lot of it out there. So get out there, share the word, tag your it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 